You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com your host, and welcome to those who are joining us again, and welcome to those who are new, and we're thrilled to have you. I want to introduce my co-host tonight, Elizabeth Lenz. Uh, we've got such such an exciting night, a fascinating guest, fascinating conversation, fascinating new book, um, and with that teaser, I'm just going to give you a quick introduction to what you've got yourselves into tonight. Uh uh, if you want to learn more about us at morphom.com, it's M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com. You can go to the website. Basically, we started this about seven years ago, uh, trying to figure out what our next step was going to be. Really difficult and without confidence and without guidance and without uh, any idea. Decided rather than reinvent the wheel to go out and interview women all over the country and see what they had done, how they had done it, steps that they had taken, steps that didn't work. Sometimes even more importantly, the steps that didn't work. Um, these interviews were video interviews and taped. They're up on the on the website that we have again, morefun.com. Uh, we also realized that it was great to have the virtual, but you also need the actual. You need to have someone to actually communicate with and connect with. So since then, we sort of added something every year. We now teach classes. We host conferences. Our next one's going to be in February fourth in Westfield, New Jersey. We're very excited. Again, featuring women and their stories and their journeys to inspire others and to connect them with others to allow them to figure out what's next for them. Uh, we now we have the radio show live every week, every Thursday night. And if you miss it or if you want to hear it again, which I'm sure you will after you hear our guest tonight, uh, you can listen on our iPod, um, I mean our iTunes podcast, More Fun Moments, which would be up tomorrow. Um, we also are about to launch the club. We're very excited, an online community, uh, which, again, will feature stories and video interviews and lots of fun stuff, and you can find all about that on morphmom.com. So without further ado, and I'm sure everyone's tired of hearing about me right now and morphmom, let's get to why we're here tonight. I'm thrilled and honored to introduce my guest, uh, William Irwin, tonight. Uh, he is the Hervé LeBlanc Distinguished Service Professor and Chair of Philosophy at King's College in Pennsylvania. He's an author and an editor. Uh, he's got many books, many, many, many books, and just to name a few, The Simpsons in Philosophy, The Matrix in Philosophy, Seinfeld in Philosophy. And again, that's just a few of his many works. He's, his writing has appeared in and he's been interviewed by many, many outlets, including The New York Times, LA Times, USA Today, CNN, BBC, and as I mentioned before, that's just to name a few. Uh, and although there are many other works and many other uh, appearances that, that he's made, we're here to introduce his new book, which is absolutely fascinating and mind-blowing and <laughs> will raise a great deal of conversation. God is a question, not an answer. Finding common ground in uncertainty. And without further ado, William, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me, Kathleen and Elizabeth. That was a, a lovely introduction, and it's a real pleasure to be with you. It's, it's an absolute pleasure. And uh, before we even get further, will you tell us about your journey and how this all began and, and what led you to all the books you've written and, and what you led 
to you here today? Well, let's see. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a philosophy professor, as you noted, and uh, so I've written some, some works that uh, try to connect philosophy to popular culture, and I guess that begins for me back in high school when I had uh, sort of an, an existential crisis, uh, couldn't figure out what it was all about anymore, and started looking around, and with the help of some teachers, discovered philosophy, and pursued that in college, and then in graduate school, and and now, now I'm teaching it, and uh, I'm interested in uh, in a wide array of uh, areas of philosophy, uh, including the the subject of God, which I guess is the uh, uh, issue that we have really on the table with us tonight. And what was the what sort of led you to write this book? Well, uh, the question of of God, the existence of God, does God exist? What is God if he if he or she or it does exist? has been with me since I was a, a young person. I, I alluded to before just uh, the existential crisis that I had in uh, in high school where uh, the, the faith that I had growing up uh, raised uh, pretty strictly Roman Catholic uh, left me, uh, partly uh, under the influence of, uh, of Jesuit priests who uh, really interrogated what was a naive and uninformed faith and, and seemed to have the uh, the mindset that uh, a naive and uninformed faith wasn't one worth having, that you needed to fully interrogate and explore issues of faith, and uh, even if that meant moving away from uh, belief in God, as it did for me. But but the question, the grand question of God's existence has has stayed with me, and, and I consider it uh, a question that everyone needs to engage and, and revisit over and over again, and uh, I guess that's what led to writing the book. It's interesting that you mentioned that it was the Jesuit priests that sort of encouraged that exploration, that they were open-minded to and and encouraging to allow you to, to take that journey and to question your beliefs and to come to whatever conclusion you were most comfortable with. Well, that's right. That was clearly the message, and it was it was shocking for me when I was about fourteen or fifteen in, in a Jesuit high school. Uh, having come from uh, a Catholic uh, elementary school where uh, uh, the nuns uh, put the uh, the fear of hell into me and uh, don't question these things, right? And uh, then then it was a complete reversal uh, under the uh, the Jesuits uh, teaching me to, that uh, uh, not everything that the Bible says is necessarily so, and not everything that the nuns had taught you in uh, in grade school is necessarily so, and you need to uh, to interrogate these things. For yourself, and, and a faith that goes unchallenged isn't uh, a faith worth having. And, and even though I, I lost my faith in that process, I, I continued uh, with Jesuit education, going to uh, to Fordham University after that, and I maintain uh, a relationship with uh, with Jesuit priests to this day. And uh, it's, it's it's very important to me. I think uh, our common ground, as I say, in our uncertainty, and I, I think. Uh, all of those uh, those men who were so instrumental in my own formation would tell you that uh, their belief is not without doubt. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's really not faith unless it is uh, a struggle and uh, where one revisits the questions over and over again. Well, and we mentioned before off-air, um, Elizabeth and I are both products of Jesuit education <laughs> and secondary education, um, and in the Jesuit community, it's about mind, body, spirit, it's the whole person. And 
So I'm not surprised that they did encourage the discussion and the journey and the discovery. And you weren't supposed to be led by blind faith. That is kind of mind-blowing, I imagine, to a 14-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure uh, that, that my parents were all that happy about it. <laughs> so probably some of the, uh, the people who got wind of uh, you know, my, my dwindling and, uh, and loss of faith at the, at the time. Uh, but, but really, it's, it's, it's important, I think, I mean, particularly when you put it in the, in the context of, of a Catholic uh, upbringing. I had been confirmed at the age of 13, right, which is supposed to be an adult decision mm -hmm. to, yep. uh, to enter the faith. And, and, and what 13-year-old really is in, in the position to make that kind of a commitment and with, with the with an adult understanding certainly I wasn't and uh, maybe I would have been in a better position to decide or for or against when I was 14 or 15 or uh, older than that so uh, it cuts both ways I suppose when you were in the middle of this journey or, or this sort of discussion and discovery period yeah were you hesitant to share with others at the younger age Having been, you know, educated in this Jesuit community, were you hesitant to share your doubts? Well, I suppose with some people uh, I was, and, and with, with other people, uh, no. I mean, uh, ironically, I, I suppose uh, sharing doubts with, with, with Jesuits who I was being educated by was a lot easier than, for example, Voicing them at the uh, at the table at Thanksgiving dinner, right? Uh, that uh, yeah. wasn't going to go over very well, right? No. And and I suppose that's that's something that I've had to learn uh, throughout life, right? Uh, as, as a philosophy professor and as a student of philosophy, I, I enjoy debate and and discussion, and I believe that positions should come uh, about through reasoned. Discourse, but I, but I've had to learn uh, that not everybody appreciates an argument, a reasoned discourse in every situation at every time, right? So, uh, Thanksgiving dinner when I was fifteen or sixteen was not the place to have that discussion. And <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned something at, at some point in your writing about the doubt of indifference as opposed to the doubt of desire. So, yeah. where and can you explain that a little bit and, and the significance of that? Yeah, right. So, so I, I, I took that uh, that phrase or those phrases from uh, another philosophy professor, and uh, the doubt of indifference uh, is, I suppose, what you might think of if you if you think of the uh, stereotypical apathetic uh, teenager. I don't care, right? It uh, doesn't matter. Uh, and uh, I suppose what what I'm arguing for in the book. Uh, is that uh, instead of a doubt of indifference, uh, or, or uh, we should have a doubt of desire, where we're actually uh, concerned with and passionately involved uh, with the issue, right? Uh, and, and that applies both for the, uh, the believer uh, and the non-believer, that uh, desire recognizes the, the importance and the uh, fundamental nature of the, of the concern. And I guess, again, lying faith as opposed to faith with a bit of doubt or with a bit of questioning. Sure, so right. That. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so the, the doubt of indifference on the... Uh, the doubt of indifference in, in some ways, is, I was going to say, is the flip side of, of blind faith, but it, but it really mm -hmm. isn't. 
because the flip side of, of the blind faith of the believer is is really almost the blind faith of the of the non-believer, uh, and so th- there are those uh, out there, and you know we can think of some of the uh, the usual suspects who uh, are really evangelical atheists, right? They're trying yeah. to spread the gospel of atheism, mm-hmm. uh, if you will. Uh, the philosopher William James, uh, well over a hundred years ago, had a uh, a nice quip to describe this kind of uh, person. Uh, he said uh, that this this kind of person believes in no God and he worships him. Huh. Right? I like that. <laughs> <laughs> right? So you, you've basically made a religion out of your atheism uh, at, at, mm-hmm. at that point, right? And and so in, in the book, I'm I'm trying to make the case that uh, just as the uh, blind faith of the believer. Uh, has you know lacks the uh, the mature and uh, desirous consideration that uh, that the issue uh, deserves. So too does the uh, committed uh, atheistic evangelicalism uh, lack a certain sort of uh, integrity and uh, a humility, right, to recognize mm-hmm. the, the grand uncertainty that's involved. Again. Is something that carries over, not to bring politics up at all in any way, but just in general. Like, you would hope that in many aspects, people sort of, again, this blind faith, this term of just kind of going forward, believing what you believe, believing what's said without ever questioning it. Yeah. You can never bring it to the table. There's never going to be a constructive conversation because you're never really going to listen, I guess. No, that, that that that's absolutely right, uh, and and we see this uh, this sort of thinking map onto the political as, as well as you say to a certain extent, and I, I think uh, both in the realm of politics and in the realm of religion, we have extremes on uh, on two sides or more, and uh, those people may not be uh, open minded to considering the possibility that they're wrong. I, I suppose if uh, if there's a message. Uh, in my book, it said that with almost any statement of significance, I need to append to it, but I could be wrong. And, mm-hmm. and how often do we ever hear anyone in, in political discourse uh, really add that uh, uh, that qualifier to the end of uh, of what they say, right? Or religious discourse either. And yeah, uh, un- unfortunately, right? Uh, we should hear it in, in religious discourse for sure. And so I, I think one of the great lessons uh, that uh, were uh, benefits of, of the education that I've had and, the, and now that I try to uh, provide to, uh, to my students is, is not to teach people what to think, uh, but how to think, right? I think uh, th- that really was the great benefit of, uh, of my Jesuit education, and uh, that's what I at least try to do in the, the philosophy classroom myself. Would you say of those, when you're teaching that and how to think, and some of the, the, the characteristics that best help you to think that way would be, one, I guess, humility, the ability to listen, but also a humble and, and a humility where you're actually recognizing that you may not be in the right at all times? Yes. Uh, I mean, that, that's fundamental as far as as far as I can see, and... Uh, it's a hard thing to teach directly, right? Uh, you have to model it. And uh, I think we've all probably had teachers uh, who modeled humility by 
uh, admitting to a class something that they didn't know and uh, admitting when they made a mistake. And we've all had teachers uh, who were quite the opposite and, you know, (laughs) clearly uh, lacked humility in any sort of way. So it's a fundamental uh, teaching of philosophy, I think, from Socrates, uh, saying that uh, he knew nothing much at all uh, onward, right, to admit our humility. But but reading reading about it uh, is is less effective than uh, than seeing it, right? People would rather uh, see a sermon than hear one, I suppose they say. I love an expression that you put down about partners in continuing conversation. Yeah, and I, I love that. I think that rings a bell. Just again, extending well beyond just religion itself, just everything in life. Right, right. So, considering uh, an issue completely settled, particularly when you know that there are intelligent and educated people who disagree with you, seems to me that uh, really missing out on on a great opportunity, uh, as well as lacking humility. Right, you're missing out on. Yeah on a great opportunity in that when we only uh, talk to and listen to people who agree with us, we don't really learn very much, and, and we actually uh, forget the, the reasons why we believe or don't believe our own points of view, because we need to sharpen our uh, our saws, so to speak, by uh, engaging in discussion, civil discussion, with people who disagree with us and, and continuing the conversation. When you were writing this and with all the material and going through everything, what, if there was something, what was the hardest thing for you to sort of come to grips with yourself and then in turn share with others? I don't know if there even was something like that. Yeah, that, that, that that's, that's a good question. In terms of uh, coming to grips uh, with something and, and sharing it, uh, there is a, a personal element that, that runs through the book, some in some places more than others. Uh, but I, I have a chapter on something that seems like uh, an oxymoron or a con- contradiction in terms to some people, uh, which is atheist prayer, right? Sounds mm-hmm. like, how could an atheist pray? What, what sense would that make? But uh, as someone who considers himself an atheist, I also am a person who uh, appreciates the importance of prayer. And uh, so th- th- this is something I, that I explain in the book, that, that we think that's a contradiction in terms, maybe, because prayer would have to be directed to God, and if an atheist doesn't believe in God, what sense does that make? Uh, but I, I try to make the case in the book, I, I cite some... Uh, prayers from other traditions, including uh, a prayer from Tibetan Buddhism that's not directed at uh, any god or deity at all. And uh, as an example of a way in which uh, an atheist can modify an existing prayer, uh, I uh, put forward the example of, uh, of the Serenity Prayer, which uh, many people are familiar with. It certainly has an important role in uh, in recovery groups, right? God grant me the serenity to accept the people mm-hmm. I cannot change, courage to change the person I can, uh, the pe- the, to change the things that I can, and the wisdom uh, to to know the difference, right? And I suggest uh, all you need to do to alter that uh, for an atheist prayer is to say, uh, "May I have the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change," and, and mm-hmm. so on. Uh, from there, uh, and also pointing out uh, in this case that prayer 
doesn't necessarily need to be asking God or anyone for anything, right? That's one form of prayer, petitionary prayer. But there's also the mm-hmm. prayer of thanks. There's the uh, prayer that's simply uh, expression. And uh, I think that's very important. We were talking a good bit about humility before, right? And uh, humility uh, expressed in prayer uh, is, is an important thing, and it's something that most atheists don't avail themselves of. And just the idea that uh, you talk what was difficult to, to share and talk about, but, but to me the idea of atheist prayer is in some ways not very different from singing in the shower or singing in the car, which are other things I like to do. Uh, <laughs> the fact that I don't think anybody is listening actually makes it better for me in those cases. <laughs> so, so would atheist prayer then just be, or not just be a... Um, a method of channeling energy and focusing energy is that is that the what's the end goal of the atheist prayer? Yeah, yeah, good. that that's a, that's a really good question. That, certainly, that's that could be one way to to look at it, right? Uh, for me, uh, it's about cultivating certain uh, traits uh, uh. that I'd like, right? So we mentioned humility uh, by by kind of uh, expressing my smallness uh, in the grand scheme of things, gratitude, right, uh, mm-hmm. in, in expressing uh, I'm grateful for fill-in-the-blank, right, uh, and also the expression of hopes uh, and, uh, and dreams and, and wishes, right? Uh, so uh, even if uh, there isn't the thought that there is uh, someone who's going to uh, intervene for me, uh, when I kind of express in the sort of personal way that I would, that uh, uh, I hope my son has a good day at school and all the other kind of things that I think about uh, in uh, in prayer, uh, it, it's a way of, of kind of expressing that, right? Much mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, it, it can be an expression uh, to uh, an, an emotional expression to sing in the shower or in the car, that kind of thing. And forgive my... Um or my stupidity, I guess, but um, I, I, I don't know. Is it, when you are an atheist, or, or is there a higher power, or is there like are, are you? Is there a way to seek guidance from someone, or is it a? How does that work? Yeah, that, no, that's that's a that's a great question. There's, there's nothing naive about that, right? Mm. Uh, it, it's particularly uh, a good question in, in light of uh, the, the recovery uh, issue that I mentioned before, right? So if right. is in recovery, higher power is, uh, is an important thing, and uh, it's difficult for people uh, in recovery to make sense of being an atheist and, and making sense of, uh, of higher power, right? So I, I don't think it's, it's necessary that someone who is an atheist conceive of a higher power in the sense of a, of a deity, but I think it's perfectly possible for someone who needs to reconcile, uh, for example, uh, 12-step recovery with uh, mm-hmm. atheism to think of, for example, they might simply think of truth as uh, the higher power, right? That there's something bigger than them, call it truth, call it reality. Uh, you know, some people uh, like to uh, think of it in terms of, uh, of Eastern religions and uh so, for example, in, in Taoism, right, the Chinese philosophy and religion, there's a concept of the Tao, which means the way uh, or the path, right, almost like the current 
that runs through a river uh, as flowing through the universe, almost like the Force in Star Wars. Uh, and so th- these are non-theistic uh, ways of believing uh, of, right. of something bigger than yourself, even if it isn't God. So, so a question for you. So, um, my name's Kim, by the way. And Wait, we have another co-host. We've got a secret. <laughs> oh, Everyone wants to be here for this interview. Wow, I'm honored. Hi, Kim. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Also, my mic comes from stupidity as well. But so, um, not being that um, familiar with with um, being an atheist, do um, mentors and familial relationships kind of take on a a stronger presence, or is there a stronger need to kind of have someone, you know, to, I I don't know that I want to say bounce things off of, but do those things, do you think, become more more important, um, part A, and B, being that you are a professor, um, you know, and has and obviously studied extensively, do you find, um, is it the, the older set or the younger set, do you, do you find more pliable, moldable as far as um, changing their thoughts or the, you know, the design in which, you know, they, they approach a situation or that they might be more uh, amenable to appreciate a different point of view? Yeah, well, those are great questions. Uh, in terms of the, uh, the need or desire for uh, a mentor, that, that very well may be. That, that, that really is a great question that, that I haven't thought of before. All I can do is, is speak for, uh, for my own experience, and I, I certainly uh, find uh, usually older uh, colleagues, uh, family members, friends, uh, valuable as mentors, and maybe I do lean on them more than I would if, uh, if I were a religious believer, right? Uh, one of the, the difficulties, uh, I mean, I think plenty of, of religious people uh, certainly value uh, mentors as well, and, and mm-hmm. even spiritual advisors and guides, because what one of the, the difficulties in praying and, and asking for guidance from God is that one is subject to self-deception about whether this is really, uh, you know, the, the message from God or my own wishful thinking, etc. Obviously, it's important for religious believers as, as well. But uh, certainly, uh, if you if you don't have uh, the divine to, to look to, then uh, all the more so you need to look for uh, for human mentorship. And uh, th- then I really appreciated your question about uh, about who seems to be more pliable and open to changing mindset and, and ideas, uh, older or younger people. Uh, maybe I have uh, a skewed uh, population uh, that I'm uh, that I'm dealing with, but uh, strangely enough, in in my limited experience, uh, I, I find uh, older students, at least, uh, more open-minded and and uh, more. Uh, perhaps subject to change. Uh, just for example, in in this past semester, in my, in my introduction to philosophy class, I had uh, two women. I, I don't know their exact age. I would guess they were in their thirties or forties, returning to school, and uh, both of them with uh, very clear pre-professional 
plans, right? Uh, one wanted to complete a nursing degree and the other a degree, I think, in human resource management. So neither of them uh, was excited about taking a philosophy class. <laughs> it was simply a requirement. Until they met you. <laughs> well, I don't think it necessarily had much to do with me, uh, but, but, but I found them you know, much more open-minded and inquiring than the uh, than the uh, run-of-the-mill college students, so to speak. So uh, that that that's kind of funny. I mean, I just think it speaks to something about education. Both of these women uh, had a lot of skin in the game with their education, and and they were paying for it themselves, and they saw a definite. Uh, career uh, issues involved, et, et cetera. So the education, I, I, I often say, is one of the few things that almost nobody wants their money's worth uh, for. Uh, but but these women uh, clearly wanted their their money's worth, and and hopefully they got it. Can um, can you tell us a little bit about um, the religious fictionalism? I found that a fascinating concept. Oh yeah, okay. So <laughs> fictionalism uh, is. Uh, an idea with regard to religion, a bit like what we do when, when we go to uh, to watch a movie, right? So, uh, if I go with my son to see uh, an Avengers movie or a Star Wars movie, I pretend in my own mind uh, all things are possible and could happen that uh, I, I know in in the real world couldn't happen, right? It's the willing suspension of disbelief, and and we generally think that this is a good thing to do and. In watching movies and reading novels, it broadens our imagination. It helps us empathize with characters who aren't like us, etc. Uh, the, the problem with that is when somebody does not leave the, the fiction behind when they walk out of the movie theater or uh, the, the novel or whatever the case may be. And, and we really do see this more and more. Uh, with people living lives online, right, where they play, for example, a video game or part of a virtual community, etc. Uh, but the transfer then to, to religious belief is this idea of religious sectionalism, where for some people, they don't really believe in God, but they uh, they go through the motions of it. Some some people continue to go to uh, to church or synagogue or mosque on a regular basis, even though they don't really believe in God and uh, uh, similar things like that. Uh, the example I quote in the book is from uh, uh, a woman uh, who's a, a philosophy professor who uh, does the Seder with her family uh, at Passover, and she says, well, I pretend at that time that uh, you know there really were these uh, historical events and that God intervened, et cetera. Etc. And uh, I make the point in the in the book that this may be this may work for some people, and uh, it may be not very harmful in in any kind of way as as long as they treat it more like the Star Wars movie, where uh, I walk out of it and I no longer think uh, that I can pull a lightsaber from my or anything like that. Uh, where it becomes problematic is where it, it really isn't authentic and where the person never pays attention to the fact that, no, I don't really believe uh, any of these things, but uh, I simply go through the motions and act as if I believe it. That, that's a person who, who I would say you know, would benefit from really looking more closely at what they do or don't believe and perhaps making some changes on the basis of that. Hmm. 
in that instance, and I, you know, and in Catholicism, I can speak to. I don't know. I'm sure there's something consistent in other religions as well, where you're sort of given. You know, we were talking about this earlier. Do you, if you go to church, and if you go to church every Sunday, or if you don't go to church every Sunday, does that necessitate you're not your faith is not as strong, or your belief is not as strong, as opposed to the person who does go maybe every Sunday? Um, and we were just discussing this before, and what, and do your actions necessarily dictate the strength of your faith or the um, the magnitude of it? And I don't know. I mean, it just I know like for example, I'm not admitting this on live radio. I'm not always the best at making church every Sunday, right. but you know, I don't believe that negates my faith. But others, you know, others may or may not. I don't know if you ever you know, dealt with any of this. Right, right. Yeah, so, so this, this is the strange sort of contrast, and I, I think you're right uh, that someone could have a perfectly strong faith and, and, uh, and belief, although they, they're not the best at observing everything required of them, whether it be uh, Sunday church attendance or, or whatever else the religion may dictate. And then the strange thing is by contrast, is that you could have somebody who is showing up to church uh, every Sunday and who is uh, walking through the, uh, the the rituals and, and things that are expected. But if you if you really ask them uh, in a moment of, of complete honesty, do you actually believe these things? They would tell you no, and. Uh, it really, in some ways, goes back to me uh, to one of the uh, the wisdom sayings of Socrates that the unexamined life is not worth living, right? And so, the person who is the religious fictionalist of the kind who doesn't really uh, pause unless put on the spot to consider what they really do believe or don't believe and how that's affecting their lives uh, is is in some ways less authentic, uh, in many ways less authentic than the person who's perhaps inconsistent in practice, although steadfast uh, in faith or belief. Well, it's funny, I guess it can work both ways, because, again, the person who's less consistent can maintain, you know, almost in a backup against the wall, <laughs> you know, yes, it's just, you know, just because I'm not doing that doesn't mean, but I guess, you know, if you sit down at the table and have the conversation about that, actually really think about, why maybe you're not doing some of those things. But also with these, if, even if a person is, is, is sort of uh, practicing religious fictionalism that they're going through the motions, but the motions they're going through also include following the lessons of the gospel, um, even though they might not necessarily believe that for example, Jesus was a real person. I, I don't have a background in philosophy. Or, you know, no, no, but that's a, that's an excellent question and a, an excellent point. Uh, and, and, and in the book, actually, I, I talk about, uh, and this is this is not uh, uncommon, uh, a priest who had totally lost his faith, didn't believe uh, in in God anymore, but nonetheless. Uh, continued to uh, say mass and continued to, uh, in, in in his particular case, it, it was largely about uh, a, a mission uh, and a ministry to the poor and, and the work that uh, that he was doing for the benefit 
uh, of uh, of the poor and and for a certain community. Now, uh, to me, that, that I, I couldn't live that way, right? You know, kind of putting on uh, a show. Uh, although I think, for the most part, he didn't think a whole lot. Uh, about it, he compartmentalized. I, I suppose, uh, as they say, I, I don't think for me I could compartmentalize that way, nor would I want to. But but it mm-hmm. just it just isn't completely uncommon uh, to find somebody who's lost their faith and nonetheless finds value in, in for example, the the message of the Gospels and the uh, the, the model of Jesus and uh, even the mission of the church. Right. Fascinating. So, with that instance, and you know, like the, the good or the end justifies the means. So, like you said, maybe if you're even questioning your faith or your wherever you are, but you're going through the motions, but ultimately, in so doing, you're bringing such good to other people and your whatever religion it is or whatever it is you're doing. You know, maybe like Elizabeth said, sort of your your actions sort of bring you back in. Somehow, maybe you don't even know what's happening, but by bringing good and bringing, you know, I don't know, by helping no, others. I, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and so to kind of touch back on uh, a description we, we were talking about before, con- continuing conversation and, and being in continuing dialogue partners with, with, mm-hmm. with other people, right? So rather than uh, see somebody who has lost their faith as now uh, an infidel or a sinner or whatever we may want to, to say, and instead to, to realize that that person can continue to, uh, to bring good and do good, and we don't know uh, what ultimately uh, their uh, fate and, and faith will be. That This is part of the, the, the reason I like to emphasize this idea of God as a as a question, not an answer, right? Uh, rather than saying that I've, I've settled the issue once and for all and I could never uh, change my mind and go back where I came from, right? So as a person who has uh, lost his faith himself and considers himself an atheist, I, I don't close the door uh, on the possibility that I could be led back to, uh, to belief and faith at some point. And uh, I, I'd hope that my, uh, my good actions in the meantime count for something. <laughs> And, and speaking of dialogue, I know that this book was written sort of as a, um, a response or an, or an outgrowth of an article that you had written um, that actually appeared um, on Easter Sunday in the yeah. paper, and that you had a lot, and that you had a lot of um, positive feedback and dialogue from from many people of faith that um, that sort of led you to broaden broaden the idea and and, and continue the um, continue the dialogue. That, that's and right. Surprised by that. That's right. So uh, I, I had uh, an opinion piece by the same title, God is a Question, Not an Answer, uh, published on an Easter Sunday in, in the New York Times. And when I heard it was going to be published on Easter Sunday, I was, I was a bit uneasy about it. Because, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, I have many, uh, many uh, Catholic and, and Christian uh, friends and family, and, and they really don't need to hear from me this way on Easter Sunday, right? <laughs> But on the other hand, it was the New York Times, and I couldn't say no to that. So, uh, and and I feared uh, when the piece came out that I would get a lot of very uh, angry email and comments and things from uh, from religious believers, right? And I had this stereotype of the Bible Belt. I'm going to be getting all of these 
uh, emails from down south somewhere and that kind of thing. And I, I got a little of that, but uh, I got much more positive response both from uh, from Catholics and from Protestant ministers. And I, I got a, uh, a terrific uh, anecdote from uh, a rabbi that I ended up uh, using in, in the book. And uh, I mean, I heard from people all across the uh, the religious spectrum. Uh, strangely enough, the, the, the preponderance of the negative comments and emails came from atheists, uh, and uh, they, they, many of them in particular took umbrage uh, with uh, the phrase that I used, an honest atheist. I described myself as an honest atheist, and I, I didn't mean for a second to say that most atheists aren't honest, but I guess you have to be careful what you say, because it's open for people's understanding and misunderstanding. Uh, but uh, ironically, the, the, the people who were most angry uh, were people who I would say were not honest atheists. They, they considered the issue of God completely closed, and how dare I say that uh, any of this could be possible, and uh, so on and, and so forth, right? And uh, I, I think a lot of them uh, fell into the category that I described earlier as sort of evangelical atheists, Right. And and a lot of them simply had a, a particular conception of God, maybe the one that they were raised with, mm-hmm. or uh, maybe uh, some version of God they considered to be logically impossible, and that was it. Uh, but part of the uh, the case I try to make in the book is that uh, it's a big world with a long history, and there have been many, many conceptions of God across times and places, and, and simply because... Uh, a person rules out one conception of God doesn't mean uh, that they've fully solved the uh, the riddle. Uh, there there could be simply a clockmaker God who wound the uh, the clock and set it in motion. Uh, there are any number of other possibilities that are much more difficult to simply rule out and are worth continuing uh, contemplation upon. So when you talk about um the question, and I guess you'd say, you know, God is the question, the fundamental question. And if you bring it down to, I, I guess, as basic as this, but I don't think it can be, existence versus non-existence. But I don't think it can be that simple, even by what you just said. Yeah. It, it could, it's not just, it's, I don't know. So how would you, if someone were to ask you, I guess, what is the base primary question? Yeah, yeah. Uh, right, so it, it's not simply, is there a God, but we, we need to say, well, what do you mean when you talk about God? And so as I was saying before, there's a, there's a chapter in the book that talks about many of the different varieties from the uh, uh, from uh, Hindu tradition to uh, uh, even uh, female conceptions of the divine in Wicca, etc. It's, it's a big world with many cultures across times and places, right? Uh, and, and so there are many different possibilities for, for the uh, for the divine. And uh, actually, uh, the, the title itself, "God is a Question, Not an Answer," uh, is is something that I uh, I took from a character. Uh, in a novel called The Merceau Investigation, and uh, the character in the novel is Muslim, and he's being hounded by his imam 
uh, you know, to go to uh, uh, to services and to and to be a good Muslim, etc. He's hounding him over and over again, and then in a moment of anger, the character says, "God is a question, not an answer." Right? Uh, and 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 that just really stuck with me as. Yeah, right. Uh, it, it, there's so much uncertainty in what what this imam uh, wants this uh, this character to do is to simply accept uh, the practices and beliefs uh, of the uh, of the Muslim faith, and, and this character uh, just can't do it. Uh, it. It's uncertain to him, and, and it just resonated with me when I read that line that it was very much. Uh, what I'm trying to get students to do in the, in the classroom, uh, and that is uh, to come from uh, an, any kind of extreme uh, position and uh, to consider the uncertainty and how close actually people are together joined by their uncertainty, both yeah. with the question of God and, and really with nearly any fundamental philosophical uh, question or issue. And as we keep, we're talking about God, with the existence and non-existence and the good, I guess, what about the evil? I mean, does that come up as well, as far as existence and non-existence and the uncertainty? Yeah, yeah, right. So evil is a, is a tough one to uh, to make sense of, right? And, and it's yeah. one of the reasons, and, and for me, I suppose it is, uh, maybe the main reason that uh, I, I can't accept an all-loving, all-powerful, all-good God, uh, mm. because to me, the, the evil in the world, not just the stuff that results from, from human free will, but just the nature of gratuitous suffering in the world, right? Why are there childhood diseases and, uh, you know, uh, tsunamis and uh, earthquakes and whatever? Why is there even the common cold, right? All, all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it's difficult to accept an all-loving, all-powerful, all-good God uh, unless one has a strong faith, I think, right? Uh, on the other hand, then, uh, and I suppose part of the thrust of, uh, of your question, right, is, is what sense do we make of evil in, uh, in a world uh, from an atheist p uh, perspective? And, and I think in mm -hmm. some ways it's, it's, it's easier, right, because... Uh, we just chalk up the uh, uh, the cold and uh, childhood disease and the earthquake, et cetera, to just being the uh, uh, effects of, of the natural world. And if there is no uh, God uh, responsible for it, that makes it uh, easier to uh, to accept that this is just this sort of uh, world that we live in. And all of the uh, evil that results from human free will, well, that's just there the way uh, that it was anyhow, uh, and uh, I, I don't think it gives license to a person to say that uh, uh, I'm going to uh, go out and uh, commit murder and uh, whatever other horrible uh, actions you might imagine. Uh, I don't think that the typical atheist uh, has any more desire to do any of that kind of thing than, than would the, uh, the typical religious believer. And when, it's, I was just thinking about when you, going back to your phrase, uh, which I love, partners in, um, like having the conversation, sitting at the table and having the conversation, and discussing the, that, that uncommon ground of uncertainty that brings you together. And I wonder, you know, I wonder what topic gets more heated. Is it the good or the bad or the evil? 
Well, I, I, I think you're probably on to something in, in bringing up uh, e- evil, right? Uh, good doesn't often call for explanation as, as much as, yeah. uh, as evil does, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you think, think about when, when things go well in our lives, we're apt to, to mostly take the credit for it, right? <laughs> uh, if something goes bad, uh, well, then we're, we're looking for uh, some explanation or, or something yeah. to blame. So, so yeah, the, the, the evil really needs needs some kind of explanation, right? right. Uh, it, it seems to beg for it. And, uh, you know, it partners in this this continuing discussion and, and dialogue. I think one of the things that, that's most important uh, is, is that we don't presume agreement of, uh, of people when uh, they may not have it. I don't, I don't know uh, what your experience is like, but I find myself sometimes in, uh, in monocultures where people presume that I will share their uh, religion, their politics, their view on this or that, simply because we share other things in common. Mm. And uh, it, it's it's like back to the Thanksgiving Day uh, uh, table when I'm 15 or 16. Is, is it worth arguing and, uh, and disputing and pointing out to them what will then be uncomfortable that uh, I don't happen to agree with them? Uh, a friend of mine uh, who uh, I suppose we all have these uh, experiences of monoculture li- likes to describe one of his strategies as zombie guts, uh, which sounds kind of gross, but I, I think we actually, almost all of us do it. Uh, uh, in, in some zombie fictions, uh, I guess one way of keeping the zombies away from you is to rub a little of their guts on you, and they think you're a zombie too, so, that, so they leave you alone. Uh, but the danger in doing that, both in the zombie fiction and in the metaphor, is that you can get infected from doing that. Ah. Right? So if we, if we too often take a pass and say, I'm just going to go along with the flow and act as if I'm one of them, well, we, we eventually in some ways forget why we believe what we believe uh, if we don't uh, put ourselves uh, out there with it, uh, at least on occasion. And I guess that sort of flies in the face of your whole point of it, that it's the conversation, the true conversation, or the meaning of the mind, whether or not you accept one another's opinion, or at least you're listening, is the way to, I guess, come to some sort of agreement, as opposed to just shaking your head, nodding, and blindly right. agreeing to avoid the confrontation. But it's That's in the confrontation that you learn. That's right, in the, in the confrontation that you learn, even though it's unpleasant, Right. Uh, and, and so the, there's a difficult balancing act, right? But on the one hand, it, it's somewhat obnoxious when someone presumes uh, agreement with you, and then on the other hand, you feel like you're the one who's obnoxious sometimes by uh, objecting and pointing out, well, I don't happen to agree with that for reasons uh, X, Y, and Z, but, but it, it, it needs to be done, right? Uh, and when somebody... Uh, is brave enough to point out that they don't happen to uh, agree. I think we need to really uh, something that you uh, you mentioned before, and obviously you're you're quite good at yourself is being a good listener. Right, talking is one thing, and it's fine, uh, but being a good listener is is equally, if not more, important. And, and isn't a great conversation, or or what is it when you you can both recognize the the sort of insecurity of doubt and the sort of the, the mutual um, the, weak, the mutual weakness that we all have that we that we really we really deep down know we don't have all the answers but and in that conversation hopefully it could come out that that we share that um, that we share that you know 
common ground. It's a real human moment when we have that mm-hmm. kind of recognition, right, where uh, we meet, if not uh, in terms of, uh, of ideas and, and arguments, at least in terms of the, the human perspective and our uncertainty. Uh, and it's a real gift to one another when we, uh, when we show that sort of humility and that sort of vulnerability. Absolutely, and I, th- I think this book will help people will help people to do that. Well, that that would be great. It certainly is <laughs> the idea. I don't I don't know how much uh, a book ever really does, but uh, <laughs> just just the fact that I'm able to have a conversation uh, with you as a result of having writ- written it, and people will be listening, and people will have their own conversations. That that's the way that things spread. I can't believe our time is almost up. We have like about a minute and a half left. And oh, well, the time has gone quickly, so that's a good thing. I think Elizabeth touched upon one of the, and I don't want to conclude the conversation, but just the springboard for this about, if nothing else, recognizing the common ground between us, that there is some doubt. And, you know, be interested, you'll be interesting, as my dad always said. And if you listen a little bit, you'll learn a little bit. And I, I can't thank you enough. Again, William Irwin, that the uh, author of God is a Question, Not an Answer, Finding Common Ground in Uncertainty. William, how can everyone get this book? Because clearly they need it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- thank you for saying so. I mean, it- it's available on-, on Amazon and hopefully in your local Barnes & Noble or whatever other bookstore you may have around. And anybody who, who does uh, does read, I'm always uh, very grateful to hear from readers who agree and, and those who disagree, for sure. Uh, people can find me easily enough uh, by googling me and getting my email address, or, or finding me on Twitter or Facebook or any of any of those ways, I'm always glad to hear from people. It was such an honor to have you on, and how timely the holidays coming up. And as you mentioned, the Thanksgiving table and the yeah, the many holiday meals that are about to be had and discussing. Yeah. I think what a great navigation tool to get you through that and to understand, you know, keep your ears open and sometimes your mouth closed a little bit and, right. and listen a little bit right. before you, you engage. Um, I can't thank you enough. I can't thank my co-host tonight, Kim and Elizabeth, Preston, our great producer. William, it was an absolute honor. To uh, have the honor and pleasure was mine. Thank you. Oh, it's so fun. I, and I have a quick shout-out that, and truth be told, we're, we're, we are calling in as well. <laughs> and Preston, our producers in the studio, we're calling in from the Grand Summit Hotel and Summit, and they've been very kind to allow us to do it from here. Um, but what a great, great night, great conversation, so much to think about. Um, and I hope to have you back on the show someday and we can continue the conversation. Talk because about some of the other that's right. books that we're just- we never even got to this Seinfeld and philosophy, uh, since in which <laughs> Well, that, that, that would be a bit more lighthearted. Let's do that sometime. <laughs> Post-holidays, when everyone's mad at each other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah right. We'll need some levity at that point, right? <laughs> Once again, it was a great, honor, a great honor. Again, William Irwin, God is a question, not an answer. Finding common ground in uncertainty. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you all next week. Good night, everyone. Good night. If you served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. 
Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Voice from today. You can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at 